Good morning, everybody. Great to, to be here with you. Uh, we're continuing our series called Dawn of a Kingdom this week, which is looking in the book of 1 Samuel, which is part of the Old Testament in the Bible. Um, this is the time in the Bible before Jesus turns up on the scene, so it's probably uh, it's over a thousand years before Jesus. Um, so, so far, I won't recount the whole series, but um, we've been looking a lot at someone called Saul. Um, and Saul is now the first king of the people of God, the first king of uh, Israel. And so far, um, Saul's done okay. He's, well, he started off doing very well as king. It looked like God's favor was all over Israel with Saul as their king. It looked like they were having success. And then from there, it has gone decidedly downhill under Saul, um, to the point where he is really not being very obedient to what God is asking him um, to do at all. And so this week is very much the next chapter in Saul's life. Uh, we'll see how he gets on this week. So we're looking at chapter 15 in the book of 1 Samuel. Um, Samuel is another person that we'll meet as we look through this passage. Samuel is the prophet um, at the time that Saul is king, and the prophet is the person who he hears directly from God. So if you're wondering who he is, that's who he is. Just before this, just to give a bit of an example of how uh, wacky Saul has gone, he made this very weird uh, vow that God would not have had him make, but he basically said... Uh, well, he, I won't go into the details of it, but it almost led to him killing his firstborn son, Jonathan, as a result of it. So this gives a bit of an idea of where Saul's life is currently heading as we enter into chapter 15. Reading from verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord's of, Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, children and child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So that's the command from the Lord to, uh, to Saul. Make it very clear. Go to the Amal Amalekites and destroy them. Verse 7, and Saul defeated the Amalekites. Great from Hivala as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from me, from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And Saul was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And then verses 12 to 16 is a bit of a back and forth between Saul and Samuel. Um, and we'll pick it up again in verse 17. And Samuel said, speaking to Saul, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. <laughs> no, you haven't, Saul. <laughs> We've just seen you haven't. I have gone on, a mission on, gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have bought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. 
But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to the fat of and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your word, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So we're going to mainly focus on, on the kind of beginning part of the passage today. But I just wanted to read most of the story, bring us into the context of what's going on, and particularly seeing that this really is the end for Saul. He has, the Lord has rejected him from being king because of his disobedience. There's a very clear instruction from God. Go to the Amalekites and totally destroy them. Devote to destruction all that they have. And in verse 7, things are looking very promising indeed. And Saul defeated the Amalekites. Five words, great. The Bible doesn't really fluff it out very much, just says they defeated them. But this is a massive victory for the Israelites. This is huge. This is a victory that had been prophesied many, many years ago. And they are a huge foe, an enemy of the, of the Israelites. This is a huge win for them, a big moment for Saul. And it just seems like, okay, it's done. Like They have defeated the Amalekites. The, the battle has been won. The, the rest of what was asked, the destruction of everything else, is merely a formality. It's just a few sheep and oxen lying about, knocking about. Just kill them off. Uh, it is, this, is, this is done. This is a done deal. Surely even Saul cannot mess this up now. Uh, what could possibly go wrong at this point? Just sheep and oxen are our only foes left. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep and the oxen, and of the fattened calves and lambs. Oh, Saul, what are you doing? You fool! I just, he was like clutching and grabbing defeat from the jaws of victory. Disobeying what God asked him to do. And as much as we might look at this and think, Saul, what are you like? Actually, I think I, can, I find Saul very relatable here. I don't know about you. I could imagine myself in Saul's shoes, um, whatever it was that they wore at that point. I think that this episode is actually quite a helpful picture of what the normal Christian life can look like. We all try, don't we, to be as obedient as we can to God. We all want to be obedient to him. But time and time and time again, however good our progress might look, we always get in our own way, don't we? We always clutch defeat from the jaws of victory when it comes to following after God with everything that we've got. What was going through Saul's head? He'd done the hard work the battle had been won. There was just sheep and oxen left to kill. Why did he fail at that final, very, very low hurdle? 
What was in his mind as he wielded that sword over them? Something must have been going on. And we see what it is when Saul finally comes clean in verse 24. It's why I read that far. Because when he finally admits to Samuel, yes, I did get it wrong. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And there we see just what's going on in Saul's heart. It wasn't a formality for him to kill off these sheep and these oxen. For him, it appears like the people had some vested interest in keeping these animals alive. And for Saul, his relationship with his army, he was probably quite enjoying being their king and their commander of this vast army. And he wanted to protect this relationship that he had with his army. The last time we met Saul and his army, Saul had an army of 600 people. Barely call that an army. Now he has an army of 210,000 people. And this is not something that he wants to throw away. And so he fears what will happen to his status as king and what they will think of him and whether they, what their opinion of him will be if they kill these sheep and oxen doesn't really matter why they care about it. But all that matters is that as Saul looks at these, this li- these livestock, as he goes to kill them, he's filled with fear. Because here is something that matters so much to him. That the Lord is asking, I want you to trust me with that. This thing that he must derive a lot of his own self-confidence from, his sense of value as a person, as a leader, as a king, sense of self-worth, a sense of security, a sense of purpose, a sense of comfort, all in these sheep and these oxen. And the Lord's, he knows that the Lord is saying, I want you to trust me with that and give it over. But he's filled with fear. He doesn't want to. He couldn't face the idea of what his life might look like if this massive part of who he was was taken away. And essentially, he was scared that if he lost this, the feelings that this relationship with his army gave him, if he gave that over to God, he was scared that if he gave it over to God, God would not fill his life with the same sense of purpose and meaning and security and comfort. And so he said, I'm sorry, God. I know you want this, but I'm going to keep it for myself. I'm going to hold tight to it. I'm going to protect it. This is too important to me to give over to you. I'm going to keep it for myself. And just like Saul, we all have sheep and oxen in our life. Perhaps not real sheep and oxen. But we all have things in our life that we get a tremendous amount of comfort or pleasure from that we know that we should be trusting God with them and giving them over to God and letting God have it. But we find it tremendously difficult to really follow God in that area.
it may be that when God actually initially asks us for that thing, we might think, oh, yeah, sure, that's no big deal. It's just a sheep and oxen. But it's actually when we then go to hand it over to God, we realize that's actually a big part of who I am. You're asking me to give up a lot of who I am. And just like Saul, we fear like, our fear is if we hand that over to God, we will not get those same, that same sense of satisfaction or self-worth or enjoyment or security from God. That we will be, some, some part of us will be empty if we give that over to God and God will not be able to fill the void that is left. And so just like Saul, instead of handing it over to God as we know we should, we have a tendency to pull things back and protect them and keep, our, keep them in our hands. For Saul, it was the approval of a group of people, and that is where he found his self-worth. You might be able to resonate with that. For me, a personal one that I've had and used to be a really big thing for me was the area of money. And it was a double whammy for me because I loved the sense of security that having money in the bank gave me. I felt like if I had enough money in the bank, I was secure. And also, I loved spending money and I loved the sense of enjoyment. I got a real buzz from buying new things. And then I felt God leading me in a different direction in my life and saying, okay, basically, I want you to live in a way where you have less money. And I was initially, I previously wouldn't have seen money as such a big thing in my life, but the moment that he said, okay, I want you to trust me with that, I was immediately resistant. I withdrew. I said, no, actually, I don't really know if I trust you enough, God, with that. I don't know if I trust to hand over that to you. And he's gracious and kind, so he was patient with me. But over a series of times, he helped me and led me into a place where I was able to see progress in that. Maybe that's something that resonates with you. I, I don't know, that's just one of my things. We've all got sheep and oxen in our lives that we love to hold on to, and we're resistant to handing them over to God, even though we know we should. I don't know what yours are. Some questions to maybe help you think about the areas where you have a tendency to withdraw and protect from God. What, if you go through a major time of crisis, what are the things in your life that you immediately turn to mentally and think, oh, at least this is in my life, that makes me feel secure? What are the things that give you a sense of comfort? What are the things in your life that give you a sense of, of value and self-worth. And if God said about any of those things, okay, now I want you to hand those over to me. I want you to trust me in those areas. How would you feel? Would you have a sense of fear at all? Because if you would, that's maybe a sign that perhaps that's one of the things you struggle to trust God in. Why do we fear that God won't come through for us? What is behind this fear that God won't provide? If we don't trust, why, why do we not trust God in these areas? Well, Samuel's challenge to Saul in verses 17 and 18 clears it all up for us. He says to him, 
Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission. Samuel saying to Saul, though you are little in your own eyes, reveals to us that Saul still thought of himself as small, as a small man. And this is despite everything that God has done for him so far. This is despite God picking him up out of obscurity, one of the smallest tribes of Israel, anointing him with his Holy Spirit, making him king, and then sending him on a mission. This makes it clear that Saul has not grasped all that God has done for him. And Samuel comes to him and says, you, are, you should know by now you are not small. God has done a big work in your life to bring you to where you are today. Yet you still think of yourself as small, as little. And if, Sam, if Saul was still thinking himself as little, despite everything that God's done in his life, then that also tells us that Saul thought quite little of God and the work of God. Because God has been good to Saul. God has blessed Saul. God has elevated him to the position of king. God has given him purpose. And he's even helped him defeat one of his greatest foes, the Amalekites. And yet, Saul is still sensing and still saying that the work of, that I am a small man, despite all that God has done in me. And so if, if he really does think that he's a small man, then he thinks the work of God is small, then of course his expectation for what God, if he thinks what God has done is small, then his expectation of what God will do in the future is of course going to be small as well. And so he he clearly then, there's no reason for him to believe that there is anything better in store for him than things like the relationship that he has with his army. If that is, why, why would he believe that God will provide anything better for him? You can understand why Saul would have that feeling of, well, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing this, this could be as good as life gets. The sense of approval and security that I get from my army, maybe that's as good as it gets. God's probably not getting anything better for me. Because he thinks of himself and the work of God as small. And Samuel's saying to him, no, the problem that you've got is that you are looking at yourself and you're looking at your circumstances and you're looking at what you've got going on in your life. Verse 17, through your own eyes. The problem is you're looking at it through the eyes, your eyes. What you need to do is look at it through the eyes of God. Stop looking at your circumstances. Stop looking at what is going on in your life through your eyes. Start looking at it through the eyes of God. The big God who has elevated you from nothing to where you are now, 
who has done a great work in your life and will continue to do a great work in your life, look at your circumstances through that lens and you'll see that he has so much more for you than what you've currently got. You don't have to cling on to what you've got because there's so much more to come. But Saul couldn't, unfortunately, look at it through that way because, as we have kind of touched on over this series so far, Saul didn't actually really know God very well at all. And so... How can he look at things through God's eyes if he doesn't know God? You just can't, can you? If you don't know God, you can't see his perspective. Saul didn't know God's nature. He didn't know his character. He didn't know how good God is. He didn't know how God has always got our best interests at heart, how God was constantly preoccupied with the the future and the fate of Saul and how he would work everything to make sure everything was going to be fine. And he's, he's got vision for his future. He's got a plan for him. He didn't know those things because he didn't know God. And we fall into the same trap that Saul does. We fear handing things over to God because we look at our own situation and our own lives through our own eyes. As we carry around our sheep and our oxen, we are carrying around small views of God. We are looking at our things through small, as small people through small eyes with small expectations of what might come. But the only hope that we have of getting free from this and, and loosing our sheep and our oxen and fully trusting in God is if we can begin to look at our lives, not through our own eyes with a small perspective and a small expectation, but through the eyes of God. Looking at our whole journey, where we've come from and where we could go through the eyes of the one who's done it all for us. That's the only hope that we have. And we see it through the eyes of the one who's forever thinking about us and forever planning for our good and forever planning to to see our future prosper. Because we are not small people. And in God's eyes, we have never been small people. He has done exactly the same for us as he did for Saul. He's picked us up out of obscurity. He's placed his Holy Spirit in us and anointed us. And he sent us on a mission. He's got great plans for us. He's saying, you do not have to cling on to the things that you've got now. You don't have to protect them for me because I've got something so much better to come in the future. In our fear, as we look through things through our own eyes... We think to ourselves, oh, I better hold on to this thing because it might just be the best that I've got a hope of getting. This sheep and this oxen. God looks at exactly the same situation, exactly the same sheep and oxen that we cling to, and he says, do you really think that that is the best that I have for you? Do you really think that that is it? Do you really think that I can't improve on that? Have the courage to hand that over to me. I'll show you what the best really looks like. As we protect ourselves and chomp on the stale bread of that which we can hoard and keep to ourselves, God looks at us and says, do you really want to eat that? Do you really want that to fill you up? I've prepared this great banquet for you. I've, create, I've, I've prepared this wonderful spread of meats Roast lamb. 
venison, lobster bisque. I have been watching MasterChef. He's got all of this for us. How do we know? But how can we be sure that God will provide? How do we know that that is in front of us? We know that he will provide because he already has provided. He already has provided. And if you ever doubt that, if you're ever not sure, has he already provided for my life? We just have to look to the cross. We look to the cross where God sent, at great cost to himself, sent his one and only son, Jesus. And Jesus himself, willingly and joyfully, though he knew the riches of heaven, he knew the great provision of God, he knew what it was like to sit at this banquet table, willingly came to us to eat stale bread with us. Willingly took that on and endured the ultimate poverty of dying on a cross so that one day we could... 21st century England, be joined with him in his poverty as he ascends back into the riches of heaven that we might enjoy all of the riches that heaven has. That can be our inheritance. And so we don't have to think about conceptually, in theory, God might one day provide for us in the areas that we most struggle in. We can know because of Jesus, his provision for our lives today that all of the emptiness that we might fear from whatever it is for you, whatever it is where you, that you place your value and your security, that you fear handing over to God, whatever insecurity that leaves you with, that void can be filled in the most pure way in a moment by Jesus. He is the God of all comfort. His kingdom is the most secure place that exists. He is the source of enjoyment, joy upon joy upon joy that transcends any of the happiness or ecstasy that we know in this life. And he is the God that gives us purpose and gives us dignity in our lives. That our lives matter because of him. He's painting a glorious story with our lives as he picks us up from obscurity and gives us a purpose in this world to go and make a difference. And not just on an individual basis, but he weaves our individual lives into his great redemption plan. I think if Saul knew all of these things, if Saul knew the God that does all of this for him, surely he would not have been gripped by fear. Surely he would have known that he could just trust God with everything. We know this God. We do not have to be gripped by fear. We do not have to fear handing things over to God because he is the great provider. But it only, this stuff only matters if we know it to be true for ourselves. We know it to be really real in our own hearts. You can sit there and listen to someone talking about it, but if this doesn't resonate with your heart, it won't actually help you. We can get stuck in a place, just like Saul did, where we actually think that the best version of our lives is one where we kind of partly trust following God, but actually I want to hold some back for myself. I want to create little spiritual insurance policies for myself. 
just in case this thing with God doesn't work out. None of us want to live in that place. None of us want to live with that tension. But it's only, there is no five-point program for getting free from this. There's no five-point program for getting better at releasing our sheep and oxen and following God. The only way that we can is through knowing God for ourselves, personally. I know the times in my life where I have felt the greatest abandonment to just say, God, you can have it all. I'll follow you. It's not the times where I've weighed things up logically, not the times where I've created a spreadsheet and looked at my options. It's the times where I have been utterly captivated by him, totally drawn into the face of Christ. And it's then that I just think, I, uh, nothing else matters. I just want you, Jesus. Because freedom doesn't come... Freedom from fear doesn't come by finding these things less attractive and finding our sheep and our oxen less good. It comes from seeing the ultimate value in him, the ultimate value in Jesus. And as we're captivated by him, suddenly these things just, they just matter less. We see that the best place to be is, is trusting in him, tucked in with him and following him. In verse 23, God does hold Saul to account for what he's done. He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. But here he's not holding Saul responsible just for this one act of disobedience. He's not saying, Saul, you were disobedient here, one strike and you're out, sorry son, no longer king. What is going on here is that Saul's disobedience, the areas Saul holding back from God, is just a, another in the line of disobedient acts from Saul that are simply just a revelation of his heart, a revelation of where Saul is at. And this is what we, we read it earlier, where the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Most translations use the, the phrase, I grieve that I have made Saul king. This is what upsets God so much. Not that Saul was disobedient, but that this disobedience shows that Saul never really loved him. He never really had Saul's heart. And this is what God is holding Saul to account for. This is what God is not pleased with. The one area of personal responsibility that Saul had was to ensure that he was loving God. To getting himself... He was, and that's what Saul didn't do. He didn't get himself into places where he could learn more about God. He wasn't interested in finding out more about this, this king that was over him. He wasn't interested in, in, in being captivated by him. And just as that was Saul's one area of personal responsibility, he had to make sure he got right and no one else could do for him. So it is with us. Our one area of personal responsibility is simply that we make sure we are getting ourselves in a place where we are loving God, where we are growing in our love for God, where we are 
allowing ourselves to grow in knowledge of him, to be captivated by him, giving something of our heart to, to finding out more and more about him. Our personal responsibility is get better at trusting in him in this area and that area. No, it's make sure you're learning to how to love him more. Because God's actually not really that primarily interested in the sheep and the oxen. Because he knows that as we love him, they will follow. He's really that easy to please. All we have to do is just love him. And that's the best place for us anyway. Because it is where we encounter joy and fulfillment in our lives. Chris. This is the final chapter of Saul's reign of king. And the focus is now going to shift as God looks forward in verse 28 to our next king who is to come. This next king, Samuel, describes him. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And as we continue this series, we will meet this king who is better. But in keeping with all that we've looked at this morning, this new king who is better, a better king than Saul is not simply someone who is more perfect than Saul or is just better behaved or perhaps more robotically obedient to the command of God. No, this better king is one who's already been described to us in chapter 13. Simply a man who is after God's heart. And just as that is what God is looking for in a king, one that is after his own heart, that is all he's looking for in us. That we would be people who are after his own heart. And then all of the areas of obedience, they'll follow as we're captivated by him. Let's sing.